also I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Hands in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Our citizen Dan. We're back after a week's absence. We're actually taking another week's absence next week. But hey, this is why you love us because we actually have things to do. I'm Kristen Lopez here this week with Karen Peterson. Hello. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. So we have a lot of topics to get to. Um, where do we want to start this week? Emma Thompson is our queen. We love her. She's amazing. But we also love her for a wealth of different reasons, starting with the fact that she told Skydance to go fuck itself. In case you don't recall, John Lasseter decided that retirement was not good enough for him, and he wanted to go grope employees at another company. And he got hired on by Skydance, uh, another animation company, to go work for them. And they are actually already making a movie called Luck. Emma Thompson has decided to leave in the wake of John Lasseter being hired. She actually left, and I love her. Yeah, she's setting the bar. She's saying, look, guys, we, it's not enough for us to just come out and tweet about terrible people and condemn them publicly. We have to actually take action if anything's going to change. Publicly explained why she was leaving. She didn't just leave and then leave it to speculation. As like, oh, she left because of last year, she left because of this. She actually wrote an extended letter basically saying, yeah, I left because of Lassiter and here are the reasons why. I loved her letter when she lays out that one of the things that really struck me was you want to give this guy a second chance, but what about the employees who don't want to give him a second chance? They either have to give up their jobs or just suck it up and deal with it. That's not fair. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the things that she said... For sign-off, I am well aware that centuries of entitlement to women's bodies, whether they like it or not, is not going to change overnight or in a year. But I'm also aware that if people who have spoken out, like me, do not take this sort of stand, then things are very unlikely to change at all, like the pace required to protect my daughter's generation. I mean, she's just, like, laying it out. She's like, this is not going to change overnight, but we can't continue to permit this stuff to happen. And I think a lot of her criticisms are valid. I mean, they're just from a logic standpoint, they make sense. She says, if John Lasseter started his own company, then every employee would have been given the opportunity to choose whether or not to give him a second chance. And she's saying that no one gets that choice at Skydance. They were just told that he was going to work there. She says, quote, shouldn't it be John Lasseter who has to lose his job if the employees don't want to give him a second chance? I also love the section she brought up at the end, she has several bullet points and she says, quote, Skydance has revealed that no women received settlements from Pixar or Disney as a result of being harassed. But given all the abuse that's been heaped on women who have come forward to make accusations against powerful men, do we really think that no settlements means that there was no harassment or no hostile work environment? She's saying that their defense is that, well, nobody got paid, so it's not that bad because money wasn't exchanged. And honestly, is that where we're at for justification now that if we didn't have to pay out for harassing somebody, then it never really happened. I just, I love how bald faced that is to say like, fuck you for saying that that's your justification. It is, I know that we're t this week we're talking about a lot of heavy stuff, but it is good to see someone with a great deal of power, a woman with a great deal of power, she even says that she regrets not being able to work with the director, that she actually was like excited to work on the film, but that 
there are other things that take precedence over, over, you know, her enjoyment or her paycheck or whatever else. And it's good to see a woman like that come out and actually say these things to be like, look, we have to do better. And it's a challenge also. It's a challenge to other big stars and other people that can be like, you know, you have a choice about who you work with and where you work and what you do. And particularly if you're a big star, you're not, you know, you don't need the money necessarily. So you can actually take a stand like this. And, and that's a good thing to see. It's good to see people like Emma Thompson being this public and this open and being like, you know, we're not, we're not going to take this anymore. I don't necessarily think this is what she was overtly intending to do, but I think that, that she's kind of setting up a dare for, for men. Like, you really think your allies follow my lead, do the same thing, support us. You know, she doesn't come out and say that, but she's the first one to very visibly walk away from something. And granted, she's in a position where she doesn't have to audition for stuff and she's made it basically. But there are a lot of people, a lot of women, especially, and people of color who don't have the, like, if they walk away from a role, then they might not get another one. So it takes people in her shoes and in her level to take these kinds of stands so that other people can too. And I hope that other people that are high profile will follow her lead. That's where we need to be at with people deciding, hey, we're not going to make these movies. And, and this seems to be the first yeah. time that a woman has done it unprovoked. Most of the time when we see these things happen, it's, oh, I didn't know. Then they leave. Um, what was Jessica Chastain, I want to say, was making a movie with somebody who people eventually came out and said, hey, he's a known abuser. Why are you making this movie? And then she left the project. Like, I don't want to have to shame somebody into doing it. They should just really look at themselves and decide whether it's something that they want to do. So, once again, good for Emma Thompson. I'm going to throw out a question because the rest of everything here is heavy as hell. So let's, let's just break it up with a fun little question. This is from Paula at Pause It's Pow. She asks, what John Hughes movie would work best as a reboot and which one wouldn't work today? That's a really good question, actually. That's a question. It is um, a question. It's <laughs> a good question, yes. When I saw this, I the first film that I thought of that I think... And I'm not advocating for a reboot of it, but I think it would it could work really well trans or move forward to a modern audience, and that's the Breakfast Club. I could really see a good independent film with, you know, a new crop of, of students. I could really see it working well for a modern audience. Actual students of color, maybe? Yeah. LGBT, they definitely would if they made it now. I think a lot of movies have been inspired by the Breakfast Club, so we already Kind of have it, but yeah, I would I would think that's the easiest one to adapt without making significant revisions to the script. Okay, so for disclosure, <laughs> my favorite John Hughes movie is Sixty Candles, and I understand that that is problematic as hell. So do I think that that would be the one that they probably wouldn't remake? Yeah. You could fix it with some very little tweaks, like removing the racism for starters, um, or the fact that I still am very confused <laughs> about Jake Ryan being like 18, looking like he's 27, and being interested in Molly Ringwald. But I don't care. I love the movie regardless. But I think that would be the one they'd probably have some trouble with. I don't think it would be interesting. Again, adding some people of color to John Hughes's world would be great. Maybe removing like some of the weird misogyny that exists in a lot of them. Um, <laughs> as long as no one ever remakes some kind of wonderful, because that movie is perfect. Are we talking only <laughs> yeah. about movies he directed or anything that he produced and wrote too? I'm going out to produce because that's how I roll. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest here and say that I've seen very, very few John Hughes films. God uh, damn it. I've seen like, and, and I think most of them I actually saw on Comedy Central back in the day, uh, or like TBS, you know, back when cable existed for me. I think I agree about The Breakfast Club. I think that that, that has a good structure for exploring like lots of different issues. 
there's no reason why you can't, you know, obviously actually have LGBTQ people or not white person that isn't a stereotype, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think that that could work really well. The others, I just don't have enough knowledge of John Hughes, except that every time I watch films, like or I remember seeing part of 16 Candles and being really uncomfortable and not <laughs> completely being aware of why. And then I, I read about it later. I was like, oh, that's why I was uncomfortable when I was like 14. I could see Jack Black playing a new version of Uncle Buck. But really don't do that, guys, because John Candy is great. I think that's the only John Hughes movie I haven't seen. You've never seen Uncle Buck? <laughs> you lost it when I told you I seen Big, okay? I just seem to be surprising you. Especially, you just wrote a piece about Penny Marshall. I can't believe you haven't watched Big still. Sorry. <laughs> you should be. You should be. I, actually, I was just looking at his filmography. I have seen Weird Science. I think that would be interesting to gender. Did it involve a Hemsworth? Because I feel like it would involve a Hemsworth. Uh, just, just for funsies. I don't, I don't know what, what would come. <laughs> so of if that. you're gonna create a man, <laughs> you're gonna create Chris Hemsworth. That's yeah, just, exactly. That's no, exactly. But you're gonna do, do Hollywood. Like we are welcome to make this movie. We will, we will do it. Okay. <laughs> You'd be totally down for that. He so would. <laughs> He would be totally down for that. Also, he would be like, I get to, I get to what? I would be the yep. perfect man. That is awesome. The girls would just look at me, you know? We're willing to take one for yes. the team. We will sacrifice. Yes. Citizen Dame Productions. <laughs> somebody asked me to do a recast article. It does, doesn't work for what I do on my blog, but somebody asked me to recast 16 Candles, and I was like, no, because I think I would make it way creepier than it already is. So we're not. I don't know young enough actors, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not down with um, who's the you know hot new actor. I still think like the Jonas Brothers are the last big thing, right? They're still right. They're still thing. No, they're (laughs) they're having a resurgence, but no, if they're not the cast of It or Stranger Things, I don't know. I only know like one kid from Stranger (laughs) Things, so I didn't even know there were other kids. Yeah, it's just one kid, and like, like he, he keeps on getting duplicated. Like that's yeah, it. <laughs> isn't that isn't that what the show's about? There's oh wait, no, nope. two kids. There's two kids because one's a girl. Okay, so <laughs> there's two kids, and that's all I know. There's like eight, but one of them has a really terrible wig. <laughs> my, mom, my mom says four. There's four kids from Stranger Things. Okay. No. So, <laughs> incorrect. You're so incorrect. Now she's counting. She's counting on her fingers. <laughs> okay. She says you're correct. So there you go. Breaking news. There are eight More kids on Stranger Things. <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> this is all the fun that's going to exist for the rest of this episode. So moving on to John Wayne. And in case you're saying, wait, John Wayne's been dead for like 30 years. No, he's back and he's canceled once again. I don't know how this happened because didn't we all know this? I mean, at least like all three of us knew this. I don't know if I consciously knew any of these specifics, but I knew this in the way that I know that, and we talked about this too. Like I know I knew this in the way that I knew that my grandparents were were racist and it's it's a very generational thing i mean well there's still a lot of racism now but it's the the type of things that he said especially in the playboy article that came out those are things that were very common widely accepted ideas and i'm not i'm not defending him at all i think what he said is terrible and the fact that he felt comfortable to say that in a public setting in an interview where he knew it was going to be published is very indicative of what life was like in Hollywood in the 60s and 70s. The thing that that kept coming back to me was just like, I never heard my grandparents specifically say any of those things, but I'm sure that they would have just nodded and agreed. So for context, this was a 1971 interview that John Wayne did for Playboy, and apparently the internet got a hold of it. (laughs) And 
people one, were finally outraged by it. So one guy, I think, I, I think the poor guy, like he actually got way more shit than he ever deserved <laughs> for this. One guy, I think, tweeted out some excerpts from it and was like, "Oh, John Wayne was a terrible human being," and then it, in the way that Twitter does, it spiraled out of control. Yeah, he talked a lot about how he didn't like. The big films at the time, which were Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy, he called them perverted, which caused him to go into this big discussion about how he believes in white supremacy. And he says how he doesn't just want to give power to African Americans because they're, quote, irresponsible people. He said that we should stop feeling guilty about slavery and he also didn't like Native Americans because he says, quote, I, I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from them. Our so-called stealing from them was just a matter of survival. Scott Iman's biography on John Wayne is, is one of the best biographies. And I don't even care for John Wayne. So if you, if you want to read about him, that's a book I definitely recommend. Having read that, full disclosure, my dad's favorite actor is John Wayne. And I should have known at the age of eight what type of person my father was based on that information alone. So I have always grown up hating John Wayne. I used to think it was some sort of Freudian, like, I hate my dad type of thing. <laughs> but no, I don't think it is. I think I just actually don't like John Wayne. And I've seen several movies. Haven't seen Big, but I've seen Searchers um, and The High and the Mighty. I always knew this. I I knew that he was who he was. And and Karen brings up a good point that he is espousing this generational divide. And I think he's espousing what old Hollywood was feeling about new Hollywood. It's it's very important that they're talking about stuff like Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy because by the 70s you had this whole new crop of Hollywood directors who were rejecting the establishment of old Hollywood filmmaking. And a lot of- Oh, old gee, and now they're rejecting the- uh, Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I, I know so many classic stars who were hardcore Republican. That was the political spectrum at that time. I mean, go look up Jane Russell's comments about abortion. They're horrible. Love her as an actress, hate her as a person. Um, I mean, every old Hollywood actor had issues when it came to their political views. So, I mean, I just, I anticipated this. Um, I think it's almost hilarious that we're just like, John Wayne hated gays? He made a movie with Monty Clift. Yeah, go look at how poor Monty Clift was treated on that film. It's just, it's funny to me. Um, this is my reminder, classic films are important. Not just as films, but for the people that made them, and some of them were scumbags. I do think that we have to have to note that it's not like, you know, 1970s came along and suddenly everybody was liberal. Even in the 1930s and the 1940s, there was a huge divide. I mean, we, we you know, we talk about the, the, um, the McCarthy hearings, and Wayne was you know, one side of that spectrum, right? He was on the same side as people like Ronald Reagan and Ward Bond and people like that. And then on the other side of it, you have much more liberal Hollywood stars like Henry Fonda. You had people like John Ford, of all people, who had fought in the war, who were sometimes labeled as uh, fellow travelers when it came to the um, the McCarthy hearings, all of that stuff. So there was al there's always been a spectrum on Hollywood. So Wayne's comments in the 1970s are not surprising, but they're not solely like, oh, that was just his generation. It's like, no, he was pretty bad even for his generation. I wasn't shocked by these comments, but I, I think I was like a lot of people in that I've never really cared that much about John Wayne as an actor. Like, I've enjoyed him in films. I've not enjoyed him in other films, but he's just sort of there to me. Um, I knew that he was very conservative. I knew that he was a, a, a Republican and even very conservative for his time period. I did not know that he was that he was an advocate of white supremacy. I did not know that he was would have been willing to say such horrible things about gay people and about black people and about women and about everybody, you know. So I I think that this interview getting picked up again kind of indicates to us that there is there has been a split. There there has been the sense that John Wayne is just this icon of American masculinity and 
we don't really think about what that icon means. You know, who are we actually venerating? What are we actually supporting when it comes to treating Wayne and treating people like Wayne as these great American heroes versus some of the more liberal and some of the more, some of the better people um, who were even working in Hollywood at the same time. People like, I mean, Danny Kaye or Humphrey Bogart, who may have had bad personal lives sometimes, but were also very politically liberal. I think that we have to be careful in talking about these icons and in actually, you know, dissecting them and being like, okay, why, why Wayne? You know, here we've got this guy who is obviously a white supremacist, obviously a racist, obviously a homophobe. And yet he's this, this pillar of American masculinity. What does that mean? How do we talk about that? And rather than just dismissing us being like, what, what do you mean you didn't know about this? Just be like, okay, well, why didn't we know about this? Why didn't a lot of people, why aren't a lot of people really interrogating? who Wayne was and what that means to, you know, contemporary American culture. I just want to clarify something I was saying when I said that a lot of what he said was stuff that my grandparents said. What I mean by that, and this is something that I had explained to you, or we had, when we talked about this on Slack, I had talked about this. And I think that, and this is where, where it gets very, um, there's an additional layer of problems actually in a weird way because the things that John Wayne is saying I don't think that maybe I'm giving him too much credit but I don't think that they necessarily come from a place of hate I think they come from a place of not understanding not being willing to recognize that all people truly are equal that all people have value and that's slightly different and the reason that I think that it's worse is because with hate, you can recognize that and you can say, well, that person's a terrible person because they hate these people. But when it's someone who is just looking at it as, well, I'm innately better than these people, that's much harder to overcome or to to contend with, I think. Well, by 1971, yeah. I mean, I think we have to look at how we as a film going public and and really as a country venerated John Wayne and created this guy that would think that he is better. I mean, I don't know how much of this is, I'm sure uh, it's about equal the portion of him that believes this before he started making movies and also had, has had had his ego inflated for the last, you know, 30, 35 some odd years as a, guy who had created the West. I mean, you look at every movie that he made, John Wayne is synonymous with Manifest Destiny, with America, with the the concept of masculinity. And so I would think that somebody who by 1971 was an old man who had been told for decades that he was representative of America, like, of course he thinks those things. He probably thought of those things before, but when you're told that you are this symbol, how can you not think that you're better than somebody? I also agree, you know, you're talking about the the conflict between the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood. And so him referencing things like Easy Rider, that is just completely, uh, it's a different world, basically, from the from the Hollywood that he existed in and from this, the film culture that he existed in. And there are two reactions to that. The one, the one is to be like, oh, this is really cool and interesting, and let's see what these kids are doing. And the other one is to be like, you're doing it all wrong. This is anti-masculine. This is not... Um, this isn't what we want. And that was part of what was going on in the 1960s and the 1970s. It's interesting that he says those things about Native Americans, given... His history as, you know, as you're saying, this representative of Manifest Destiny. And two years later, you have the the massacre at Wounded Knee. So this was a dialogue that was going on at the time. It was this, it's the same thing in reference to Black people. This was around the same period as the rise of the Black Panthers and civil rights. A, an increase in, like, militancy on all sides, He's in the middle of it going like, well, none of this is the way that the world should work because it's not the way the world worked 20 years ago. And his reaction to that is is to just be like, well, I hate all of these people or all of these people are lesser than me in some way because he's clinging to that old view of white masculinity that is just dying very quickly right before his eyes. I don't like John Wayne to begin with. This doesn't change my opinion of him. It just makes it stronger 
It's very funny to me, though. He's not the first star that I've heard of to espouse a love of white supremacy. When I told somebody, it came out last year, that Frederick March attended a school and was part of his local college KKK. I had a classic film person who got very angry with me and said that I can't blame actors for their past thoughts because that was just how they thought back then. I was just kind of like, he joined the KKK. I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter what time period you're thinking of. Now in 2019, like I already thought Frederick March was a big raging scumbag, but like now he's a racist KKK member who is also a scumbag. Yeah. There, there's some allowances that we can make for time periods, and per- particularly, as you're saying, Karen, when it comes to um, simple perspective. Well, so not not outright bigotry, but just like this is the way that you think. And so there's some allowances that you have to make, and, there's some, and, and that doesn't mean that it's not problematic, but it does mean you have to be like, okay, we have to put this in a particular, we have to set this in a historical context. Then there are the people that actually joined the KKK. It's like, guys, no, not everybody was a member of the KKK. That is a choice, and that is a deliberate choice. It's like saying, you know, well, there was an there was an American fascist party. There still is, but there's an American fascist party that was very popular in mm-hmm. Hollywood for a little while. There were people that were members of it. This is not normal. People knew what they were doing. <laughs> it brings up a question that I know we've talked about, because we all watch classic cinema in different degrees you know i'm i'm a nut when it comes to it but does this diminish the love and the need for classic cinema i know we've talked about people who feel that classic cinema is very isolating because of things like this or because of the lack of diversity in those movies do you think that this gives that those people more credence i hope not but i think it will I think that watching classic films, it's not about glorifying these people. John Wayne's not going to gain anything if you go watch The Quiet Man today. You know, that doesn't help him at all. What that does, though, is that informs us, that teaches us about what the films were and what kinds of movies were being made, who was working on them, who was making those decisions. And I think that's really important. I know some people are very resistant because they don't want to celebrate the rampant racism and misogyny, but watching those films doesn't do that. There is such a thing as compartmentalization. We can watch classic films. Like I, I, I said this online a couple of days ago, I can sit down and I can watch Gone with the Wind and I can be aware of how fucking problematic it is on so many different levels, on a gender level, on a sexual identity level, and on and certainly on a racial level, right? And I can also say, I also really like Vivian Lee's performance in that. I can do both and liking or experiencing or studying problematic things is like Karen saying a way to understand them and a way to understand the way the culture operates and where some of our stereotypes come from and who was getting to make films and who wasn't getting to make films. Also just at a purely entertainment level could be like, I really like this thing about the film, but I also recognize all of the problems that it has. Those are not, one informs the other, but they do not have to be, you don't have to simply erase an entire section of film history because some of the people were racist. In fact, it's not good to do that. It's not good to erase film history because of the fact that if nothing else, it serves as a gauge for how far we've come. And and also it's so easy to forget that there was a very wide spectrum of films Mm -hmm. being made in that time period. I've talked about this, this film before that, um, and I think it's, it's either late forties or early fifties, but a movie called border incident, which stars Ricardo Montalban. It's a fantastic film. It's a much lower budgeted film than a lot of others, but it is a fantastic film about a, about illegal immigration and the, and a border crisis starring a Mexican actor. It's, fascinating and it's important to be able to watch to watch those kinds of films and to know that you know yeah we have the gone with the winds but we also have those and that is part of hollywood history and that is part of film history as well well speaking of film history we're not going to talk about it too much but i wanted to bring up the oscars happened while we were (laughs) on break i can tell you from my oscar party which was a party of one it was me and some sushi, and a whole can of Coca-Cola. I don't usually drink 
soda um, in large quantities, but I was like, screw it. I'm not drinking one of the 90 calorie ones. I'm drinking a full can. And that got me through. Some people drink alcohol. I drink caffeine. And at a certain point during the Oscars, I was talking like I was a 1980s businessman on a full thing of cocaine. And I was very upset. <laughs> this was, I think, one of the worst Oscars that I've seen since I've been alive. I know everybody's like, oh, Green Book is the worst Oscar winner since Crash. I think Crash might be better. I actually know. I know Crash is better than Green Book. Ceremony-wise, it was the worst ceremony since I've been alive. I miss the Rob Lowe and Snow White thing. Um, I've never seen a group of people try to talk so fast because we had to get to that stupid fucking spy show before nine o'clock. So I was just demoralized. I'm glad Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't best picture, but for like an hour, I was thinking it was gonna be. Uh, Karen, I know you've already talked about the Oscars, so we're not gonna make you belabor the point, but Lauren, what about you? Well, obviously I took over the Citizen Dame Twitter. I had a great time doing that. Partially fueled by the fact that I think I got up and got a drink at every single commercial break. So by the end of the evening... So you were blasted by the time they got to supporting actors. <laughs> yeah, by the... No, my roommate came home at about 9.30 and he was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm really drunk. And he said, it is 9.30. <laughs> by the way, guys, that was a joke because supporting actress was the first award they chosen. <laughs> that being said, I was lucid and I was aware of what was going on and everything. In terms of the ceremony, I actually really liked it. And granted, I am on the East Coast, which means that usually the Oscars ended about midnight or 1230 for me. So having them end at like 1115 was fucking fantastic. You're the culprit. <laughs> One of the things that I liked, I liked the fact that we did not have to suffer through numerous host segments that I always just find incredibly boring. The, the other things that a, a lot of the speeches I felt were more honest than they have been in the past. And even the presenters seem to be more honest, like Samuel L. Jackson getting so excited when Spike Lee won and being so like confused when Green Book won um, a original screenplay. Olivia Coleman's speech, some just it felt a little less rehearsed than it often does. And it felt I thought actually a little more le leisurely as though they were they knew that because they didn't have all of these host segments to deal with they weren't going to have to rush through every single speech in order to get to, you know, army hammer shooting a hot dog cannon or whatever else they were going to do. Still and I, I liked thing that. in the world. <laughs> and, and so I liked that at that level. Yeah. Green, green book one. I think that a lot of other things won. Uh, it, it was quite a big night for um, particularly women of color, um, but people of color in general. And I liked that. So there was some good stuff and there's some not so good stuff. But at, at the end of the day, I, I think it was one of the more enjoyable um, things that I'd ever sat through. Who would have thunk that Lauren would be the positive one about the Oscars <laughs> this year? I thought Olivia Coleman's speech was probably the highlight. She obviously did not think she was going to win. And I loved seeing somebody who definitely didn't have a speech prepared. And seeing the amount of women of color and just people of color in general out there it's impossible not to feel that most of that was undone by Green Book winning Best Picture. It just feels like a three steps forward, but at the end of the day, like supremacy reigns supreme. I don't think that that's true, though. I, I don't think that it's fair to downrate how important it is that, first of all, that Roma won so much. And second of all, that so many women of color won both in acting categories and in technical categories. I think that that's really important. That doesn't say that the Green Book win wasn't a bad thing, but I do think that we, we need to avoid being like, oh, Green Book just undoes that. Because it doesn't. Because it does say that, I think that it says that there is this, this divide going on. There's a divide in Hollywood, there's a divide in film culture, and there's a divide in America right now. And on the one side, you have the faux progressivism of something like Green Book, and on the other side, you have actual progression. And they're both happening at the same time. Yeah. And the thing about Green Book winning, Best Picture is done on preferential ballot. And so people have to rank their choices. And the chances that any film wins the first round, which means they get more than half of the number one votes right off the bat, that's extremely rare. And I really highly doubt that Green Book did that. 
In fact, some of the projections I've seen based on people talking to people that are in the Academy, it probably went at least four rounds of voting, which means that there wasn't strong support for Green Book, which means that we can't draw too much of a conclusion on Hollywood not being ready to move forward based on just this one film winning Best Picture. There had to have been a split in the ballot. Like, I, I can't imagine that there wasn't because there, the films this year, we talked about it before, the films this year were weird. The spectrum of films was just very strange. You have everything from Roma uh, to Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody and, and all of the, and, you know, the favorite and all of these other films in between. So I can't imagine that, like, there wasn't some kind of a split where, you know, half the people voted for the favorite, half the people voted for Roma, and half the people, and, you know, another quarter voted for Vice or th- and things like right. that. I'm still stewing about <laughs> it. So I'm ready to just put 2018 to bed. I'm done with it. The Oscars summed up 2018. There were some great things, but, like, the overarching thing was fucking terrible i think we've talked about a backlash too we we see a backlash now in our political spectrum you know this is the price we pay for having a a black president for eight years and green book is the backlash we get for giving best picture to you know the movie where the chick fucks the fish um so you know i think green book is more Maybe this is going to sound dumb and I haven't fully fleshed out this thought, but Green Book seems to me like the people who voted for that would be Bradley Whitford from Get Out. Exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. That is exactly what it is. They think it's a racially progressive movie and they don't realize that it's not. If I could have voted twice for Green Book, I would have. <laughs> Many people I know do feel that way. They feel that it's progressive. It's one of those movies, I think they really look at it and they're like, oh, see, it's a movie about not seeing color. I will tell you, my landlord, when I moved into my new house, was like, hey, you're a film critic? Have you seen The Green Book? It's the best movie of the year. And I was just like, (laughs) okay. Funny story. I did see The Green Book and I'm reviewing it on Award Circuit this week and I just talked to the composer. She's a lovely woman and it's not directed by Peter Farrelly, by the way. It's an entirely different movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. I love how one took the preposition and the other didn't. Exactly. Well, the Green Book is actually about the Green Book, so... Yay! So it'll actually be, like, nuanced. And it's available for free on the Smithsonian Channel and right now on Vudu as well. So moving on to... Actually, let's go back to another question. This is from Keith Derrick at KH Derrick. He asked, what is your weirdest, not necessarily worst, theater-going experience? all of my experiences are worst yeah you have some pretty (laughs) bad ones like what defines weird maybe the time my mom and i went and saw the sisterhood of the traveling pants and this woman was like crying the first 20 minutes when they found the pants (laughs) she was like (laughs) she's probably been looking for pants for a long time that fit right (laughs) Okay, well, here's the problem. Like, we're at one end of the row. She is at the other end of the row. And she starts <laughs> sobbing. Like, ugly Claire Danes level crying. Okay? And we are watching her and not watching the movie. And she's crying. And then my mom and I start laughing. <laughs> because who cries the first 20 minutes of the sisterhood of the traveling pants? Like, there's not even cancer or Bradley for being a dick. He's actually in that movie or anything like we just start laughing so like at one end of the row is this woman sobbing and at the other end of the row is us laughing and i think neither one of those emotions summed up the sisterhood of the traveling pants which is just like mediocre i always find it weird when the movie theater fucks up and starts showing a different film yeah (laughs) Um, and i always get mad i wanted that to happen this was when I lived in Edinburgh I, with uh, like the day after my friends and I had gone out and, and we were all really hung over. And so we were like, oh, we're, we're going to go see a movie. We're going to go see Season of the Witch starring Nicolas Cage. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I already, this already has a four bomb conclusion right here. <laughs> so we got into the theater and like we're just we're all exhausted and I'm like, you know, cramming popcorn or whatever. And the movie starts, but it's not the Season of the Witch starring Nicolas Cage. It's 
I think it was called London, London something. Um, but it was like this terrible movie starring Colin Farrell and. Oh, okay. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I I haven't seen that movie, but I know <laughs> it's existed. Well, and it starts and we're like, this is not season of the witch starring Nicolas Cage. So three of us run out into the, into like the um, foyer and like finally get somebody to, to realize that they're running the wrong film in the wrong theater. They restart it, but they have to reshow all of the previews. Oh, no. So we sit through another 20 minutes of previews before Season of the Witch starring Nicolas Cage actually starts. So we basically spent about four hours watching a Nicolas Cage movie <laughs> about, about witches. Did somebody go out and was like, I came here for Nicolas Cage, goddammit. You're giving me a quality <laughs> actor. I want a quality performance. <laughs> we we did. We were we were just like, ah, you're supposed to be showing season of the witch and it's definitely showing London something or other. The and the person was like, Oh no, and you know, they went in and they fixed everything. It it was just long and I was like, I just spent my entire day watching this movie starring Nicolas Cage and part of the movie with Colin Farrell and uh, Kira Knightley, I think really, really hung over. And it was just, it was, it was bizarre. I got home and I was like, that was weird. I'm going to bed. You show up expecting Nicolas Cage, you get Colin Farrell and then you're like, no, I want Nicolas Cage. <laughs> we were there to see Nicolas Cage, being a witch hunter, whatever the fuck he's doing in that movie, I don't even remember. And we were being given like something with Colin Farrell. I was like, oh, that's not what I want. Colin Farrell is not what I want. That's a, that's a line no woman has said ever. Uh, I want Lauren. Nicole. Lauren is the one who said it. There you go. <laughs> Karen, you have a story. Um, you know, I've been trying to think of of one that was weird. There was one where like. I was the reason that it was weird, sort of, because there I was. It was Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> it was like the same weekend um, Spider-Man 3 and one of the Par Pirates of the Caribbean movies were out. And I don't remember which one. But I don't know why I specifically remember Spider-Man 3 either, other than that was what I was going to see. So they give me my ticket. I go inside. And it was like super crowded. And I'm all the way up in the back of the theater the previews start and I'm thinking like, these are kind of weird previews to show before Spider-Man three. It goes into the movie and it has the Disney logo. And I'm like, Oh crap. <laughs> and so I look at my ticket and I was in the wrong theater, but it was like this super crowded theater. And I was just like, well, I'm not going to just leave now. So I guess I'm just going to watch pirates of the Caribbean. And then there was this, these teenagers, this couple that was there and they were sitting right next to me and they just kept talking and pulling out their phones and being super annoying. And finally, like, and I deal with that all the time and I usually just kind of sit there and take it. But this one day I was just so frustrated. I just turned to the kid and I'm like, are you going to talk through the whole movie or what? <laughs> and he just looked at me like his eyes got huge. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he like was silent the rest of the movie and every time his girlfriend tried to say something he would just like put his hand up like nope 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 oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, because i was at the wrong movie my mother would like to remind me that the weirdest theater going experience for her at least was when her and i went to go see shame together i don't think that's weird i think that's just awkward as shit yeah I, well i took my very conservative mother to see the shape of water and she oh. loved it but she was a little uncomfortable <laughs> no i could write a book about movies i probably shouldn't have gone to see with my mom but we did and we got through it i mean once you get through like the first 10 minutes of shame you might not be able to look your mother in the eye afterwards <laughs> <laughs> we get through it okay we we made it through the movie okay we just didn't talk about it for like three three years we still haven't uh, talked about it actually i went to see wolf of wall street with my dad oh no no that was exciting <laughs> that was exciting and i mean my, my dad's a film professor like he he teaches scorsese and i was like oh I'll totally go see wolf of wall street and then by the time you get to like whatever the 15th stripper orgy scene or whatever I, I was like this this is a movie we're gonna talk about a documentary that i watched and that i forced everybody else to watch we watched the lorena documentary that is available now on amazon prime i really wanted us to talk about it much like oscar winning 
period, end of sentence. But I wanted to talk about the Lorena documentary because I feel that we're at a really good time right now to revisit some of the things from the 90s that just always felt very weird to me. And I knew that eventually we'd get around to Lorena Bobbitt. And I'm very happy that we did. If you were a sweet summer child that doesn't remember 1993, I hate you. Lorena Bobbitt was a housewife who presumably based on who you believe, either angrily with malice aforethought or had a mental breakdown. Either way, she cut off her husband's penis. Don't worry, it's fine. They got it back on him, but <laughs> there was a trial, obviously, about whether she premeditated all of this. It just led to a lot of questions. If you were growing up in the 90s, her husband was a hero. And she was this crazy, fiery Latina who had had enough and how revealed her husband's penis. I am very excited that this exists. Produced by Jordan Peele, no less, because it really doesn't just look at the case, but the history of battery against women, which we weren't talking about at the time, and how the media presented things in a very specific way. I find it funny. We talked about John Wayne and Lorena Bobbitt's husband, John Wayne Bobbitt. I'm not kidding. That's his name kind of played into that whole idea of being like this all-American male to the point that he was able to do porn and people wanted to see it. I appreciated getting to talk about this because it seems like we're finally looking back at narratives where we just naturally seem to side with the male, but we shouldn't have been, and it should have been obvious that we shouldn't have been. The incident happened in June of 1993, and it was, we had just gotten out of school for the summer and it was in between my junior and senior year of high school. This always stuck out to my mind because I was old enough to to pay attention to what was happening. I was old enough to watch the stories on the news and to read about it and to have discussions about it. Because that fall, when school started up again, the trial came around at some... I don't remember exactly when that happened. But I remember having conversations in some of my classes and just like at lunch and stuff with, with some of my, my fellow students. And... My first thought at 16 years old was, what did he do? You know, like I automatically assumed if a woman's going to do that to a guy, he did something, not necessarily something to deserve it. I'm not going to say the word deserve. Well, I will in this case, but women don't just do that. You know, like there's something that that (laughs) starts that incites that. But it was interesting because even at that age, I could see the difference in how people talked about it, like men versus women talking about this and, and how quickly people wanted to consider him a victim and just not even have the conversation about what did lead up to, to her mutilating her husband's organ. If you watch the Lorena doc, the opening scenes are like the 911 call and the cops are just like, so horrified. He's lost his dignity. Really? Really? <laughs> Do you more- car crash victims this fervently. That's the thing. So it's like, I remember, obviously it's not super etched into my brain, but I do remember those conversations. I remember this happening and, and the fact that people didn't know how to talk about it and how they only wanted to focus on one side of the story and not both. And so I, I am going to admit, I haven't finished the documentary. I've watched the first episode, but I didn't have time to finish the rest of it. But um, what I've seen so far, it's it's just taken me right back to 1993, and it's just crazy. And I think it's what I've seen. It's very well done, and I'm so glad that this is is here now. And I think that I think that we've progressed enough, matured enough in certain ways that we can have this conversation now and really talk about it the way that it deserves to be talked about. It's just unfortunate that it took 25 years for people to finally come around to seeing Lorena Bobbitt's point of view. I do not remember this this case particularly. Uh, I think I was I would have been about seven years old when it happened, but I did I did know who Lorena Bobbitt was, and like I knew the I knew the basic thing. She she chopped off her husband's dick. That's what I knew. Uh, I I watched the whole documentary and I was enraged by by the end of the by the end of the the four episodes. I was just like it's it's enraging what she went through it's enraging the way that the media treated it and 
it's enraging that so little has actually changed. Um, and the documentary goes into not just the case itself, but, but like you're saying, also the way that the media handled it, the way that people talked about it. And it's kind of everything from, you know, women's groups being like, no, this is an abused woman. Um, this is an abused woman who lost who lost her mind for a moment and fought and did something and fought back and fought back in a very blunt and very violent way to, you know, Howard Stern and and uh, Geraldo Rivera making jokes about it and talking about how this is one of the interesting things that that the documentary does is that it shows the men being like, this is unthinkable. This is the most, and one of the things that began to get to me, the more that the men are like, this is the worst possible thing that any human being can do to another human being. And you're like, women are murdered every day by their husbands and by their boyfriends and by their lovers. Women wind up in the hospital with multiple fractures on their bodies women are raped and the worst thing that one person can do to another is chop off a guy's dick one of the interview subjects says like women in africa are mutilated every day but the whole world here has to stop because one dick got chopped off <laughs> yeah and I, I i like the fact because i think that that woman is is also she's an escort at the brothel that he worked in so it's even funnier at that at that level but and all of these men just losing their goddamn minds about it. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's a good thing to chop off your husband's penis. That is not a that is not a nice thing to do. That is an act of violence. But the the fact that it that these men look at it as being the worst possible thing, this totally unthinkable thing, when women go through so much all the time and it's not um, you know is that not unthinkable is that not you know something that and, and i mean obviously it's not it's not to them because there's something secondary about women there's something less than about women the documentary is so good because it it, it goes through the trial it goes through it spends a lot of time uh focusing on her testimony and the cycle of abuse that she went through and it's it's impossible to watch that and not to believe her. The details that she goes into about what he did to her leading up to her cutting off his penis. Sitting there, I was like, you know what? He's lucky he's alive. He's lucky she didn't just cut his throat. Not saying that it's, it's you know, something that you should do, but also not saying that it's not understandable. That at a certain point, you can't just abuse someone and expect that she's never going to react to it. She's never going to fight back. I think it's a really, really necessary documentary, and I want everybody, particularly men in this country, to actually go and watch it and to get why women are so angry and so tired and so horrified by the behavior of patriarchy in this country and why it's important that they get it, that they understand. Not us. We know. It's important that they understand what is happening and that they have a responsibility to end abuse and to end this cycle. We talk about open secrets a lot in Hollywood, but abuse, depending on the situation, can be an open secret as well as the documentary shows. There were numerous male witnesses who saw her being abused and actually feel bad about it now because they say, well, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. That's also troubling, that it's just so commonplace for men to see that they don't even stop it in the midst of it happening, which I think just reminds you of how pervasive it is. And and also women. I mean, there's, there's the next door neighbor who, uh, who, you know, heard them fighting and heard him and saw him hit her and saw the bruises on her arms and on her body. And it, it also points out that it can be very difficult to try to get someone out of that cycle because she has, she has to leave. There, there's so much that, given the way that the laws work, there's so much that the police can do, and there's only so much that a, an individual observing it can do. Um, one of my favorite people in the whole documentary is the, um, the salon, the, the woman who, who went to see her at the salon, I think the day before she mutilated him. And the way that she talks about it, like seeing the bruises on this young woman's arms, seeing her terror and 
her pain and being like, I want to try to help you, but there's only so much that she can do for that. She, she can just be like, you have to leave. You have to leave him. But you can't do much beyond that. And and I think that that goes, goes with the, the male reaction too. Just like, I should have done something, but at the same time, it's like, what should I have done? What could I have done? Beyond being like, this ha- you know, you have to leave. This has to stop. Because of the way that, that the laws work and because of the way that abuse operates, at a certain point, you can't do anything. You're exactly on point too. What, what I found fascinating and I didn't know because most of it is now recent is the fact that this story was perpetuated on the fact that the media sold John Bobbitt as like this stud after it all happened. Like I never understood that because have you looked at him? But even now, as the last episode shows, he's still calling her. He's trying to get back together with her. He at one point proposes that they should have children together and that they could get a reality show. And she says, I think at a certain point, like, dude, what? Did, look what I did to you. Leave me alone. And I yeah, <laughs> so telling that whether it's fame or just the fact that he is a controlling man who feels that he he deserves her still. Like his whole thing is he claims that she's the love of his life. I don't even think that's it. I think it's that she's the one woman that got away, that he didn't decide whether he was done or not. And so you also see that culture of obsession playing out that like, he won't take no for an answer. And that's not charming. That's terrifying. She says, I cut off his penis, leave me alone. This happening when I was in high school, that's a very formative time in how you're going to look at the world and how you internalize the things, the messages that are being shared by the media. It was really a very confusing time for for me being told, like, because like I had said before, on the one hand, you know, I'm hearing, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about this and I'm thinking, well, what did he do? You know, like I automatically stood to her defense, but then basically the world is telling me that that's the wrong way to look at it. And so it was very confusing and very frustrating because I didn't have sort of an, outlet or a real way to to process and understand that they're you know that what happened in in their marriage and like marital rape and things like that there i was it i don't know how to say what i'm trying to say but basically it just we have to be really careful with how we talk about stories and and not not careful. I think we need to be more, more open and broader and really include different points of view because of the fact that kids are watching this stuff and kids are learning how to interpret the world and how to, how to understand the things that are happening to them. And I think that more than anything, this case was, was that for me. So that's going to close out this episode of Citizen Game. We're available to listen to wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify and iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes, consider helping us out. Leave us a a rating and a review. We're on Twitter at Citizen Game Pod. You can send us questions, suggestions there. We also have our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Citizen Game. And we also have our email, which is citizendamepod at gmail.com. Uh, there's our official website, which is citizendaypod.com, where we do our regular top fives. We also do Kim's Thirst Traps. Lauren does Damestruck. I'm doing more film reviews on there coming up this week. You'll be able to read, uh, actually in the next two weeks, you can read my reviews of the documentary Time for Ilhan and Hotel Mumbai. Those will be up there. Um, if you want to support us with your money, we have the Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen game, where we have a whole slew of merchandise. We also have our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash citizen game. For just a dollar, you will get access to these episodes early. Yay! Uh, you'll also get access to all of our bonus content, including our car critiques. Karen and I have started reviewing movies in the car. We're going to have our review of Greta up soon. If you want to get both of our thoughts as my review is up there now, we're also going to have reviews coming of the aforementioned Hotel Mumbai, as well as Captain Marvel. Those will all be available on Patreon first and foremost. So that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. And we also have a Ko-Fi account. If you don't want to commit to a monthly payment, it's ko-fi.com 
the, a slash citizen game. And we have our PayPal. You want to just send us money directly. Uh, it's citizendamepod at gmail.com. So that's going to close us out. If you want to get into touch with us individually, I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Kimberly Pierce, who's not with us this week, is at kpierce624. Lauren, where are you? I am at LH Business. Karen, where are you on Twitter? I am at Karen M. Peterson. So we're taking next week off because Karen and I are going to be braving the wilds of Austin to cover South by Southwest. So you will have access to our boyfriend draft that we recorded last year. We're, we're going to gear up for a new draft for uh, Patreon this month, but you will be able to finally hear all of our arguing on last year's draft that's going to be available to you guys in lieu of the regular show uh, next week. So we'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Let me give you an image. It's a cliche, but it's an image. John Wayne. Oh, God. Couldn't we start with someone easier? Come on, you're a big fan. He's got a very distinctive walk. Very easy to imitate. And if anyone was a man... All right, now try it. Just get off your horse and head into the saloon. No good? Actually, it's perfect. I just never realized John Wayne walked like that.